Welcome to another episode of Overcome Out Loud with Charlie Smith, where we have real people that have faced real challenges and found real solutions in life. You know, I like to say we've suffered enough in silence. And today I am really beyond grateful and excited uh, to have uh, Rebecca and Rose Castro from the J.C. Castro Foundation on today. Some of the episodes I'll tell you to grab a pen and paper. Today I may tell you to grab a box of tissues. Um, these are two remarkable women. Um, they have celebrated the life of their son and brother through selfless acts of kindness and creating the JC Foundation in memory of their son and brother Jeremy, who passed away from uh, an overdose um, in 2017. Um, this family's tragedy has been turned into, as I said, Selfless Acts of Kindness, J.C. Castro Foundation is dedicated to helping people find recovery. They fund people going to sober livings. They provide tons of resources for young men and women in our community. And um, to see a, 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 a foundation that's been started in, in the memory of such a, a loving young man who, who was taken from us too soon and to have the courage to come share your story with us. We've had so many people that have overcome addiction but to have the other side of that story and see what the families face and then to see how you've turned this tragedy into something so good is remarkable. So I honor you both and I'm really super grateful and, and want to welcome you on Overcome Out Loud. And I want to thank you for being here, both of you. Well, thank thanks you. for having us. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, can, can you maybe share a, a little bit about the early years? I mean, you know, you guys uh, obviously have such a, a, a close family and, and tell us a, a little bit about what the early years were, were like for your family and and when you know you started to see Jeremy starting to have some issues yeah so we have grown up very close our whole lives we you know sit down to dinner every night you know we've done everything all the experts say to do to strengthen your family you know we go to church not regularly but we go to church together we celebrate all the holidays honor God we're Christians um, and Jeremy had a great life and you know uh, he was an exceptional soccer player right. from the age of four. You know, when he was old enough to sign up for his first ASO, he fell in love with his coach, Lonnie Mercer, rest his soul. And from there, that was just it. Soccer was his life. He started playing competitively in high school for Real SoCal. Oh, so he was uh, a... For AB, Yeah. And uh, excelled, want, went on to win three national championships, you know, from the time he was 15, 16, 17. Uh, got a scholarship to college to play, um, made varsity team as a freshman. And he came home for summer. He was, he was never a great student. And he came home, he flunked out of one class and he was not eligible to play. Uh, his sophomore year so I just said Jeremy you got to get yourself go to summer school go to summer school you'll drive every day whatever uh, two days a week whatever it takes do it and he wanted to do it but instead he went to a party that summer and somebody another Newberry Park person introduced him to heroin and just basically said do you want to try something that'll make you feel the best you've ever felt in your life and he said yes you know out of curiosity he was a little down because of his situation and his life turned on a dime that night wow and so. and what a what a warning because i think you know as we look at statistics and we look at addiction you know we know that between 75 and 80 percent of people that suffer from substance abuse disorders and addiction have suffered some form of childhood trauma but there's this other percentage that you know really needs a voice which is what you guys are talking about which is you know there's there was really nothing in the in the hit family history that would indicate that that jeremy was going to have any problems he lived a, a comfortable life he excelled at sports and you find that moment i always say that substance abuse at its core is a chemical solution to an emotional problem. And, and in that moment of pain and, you know, opiates and, and, and heroin as an extension of, I know they treat emotional pain much greater than they treat physical pain. And so, you know, the warning here is, you know, it's not, it's, it may not start as experimental. It may not start as a slow, you may have all of the things in your life going for you, but all of a sudden you reach for a chemical solution to an emotional problem. And if that becomes your go-to, it's on 
And and it sounds like that's what you experienced with Jeremy. His life literally, as you said, turned on a dime. It literally did. And, you know, we don't have addiction in our family. Right. And I humbled myself through the years when he was using. And I said, Jeremy, please, if there's anything I have done or not done to make you want to turn to using, tell me. You know, I'll beg your forgiveness. I won't get angry. I won't lash out. Tell me if there's anything I have done. And he said, no, Mom, You, I've had a great childhood. I just, I was a little down over a girlfriend. He had a major breakup in high school, and he never really recovered from it. But the fact that it's handed right here, it's like if I put a dish of candy in front of you, you know, and it looks great, you're going you're gonna to try it. And sometimes you're never going to be able to give up that candy again. So part of the problem is its availability, you know? And then you smoke and it's like, oh my God, this is so awesome. And I didn't die. You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden your body just needs it, needs it, needs it. Um, I cannot put my finger on one psychological problem he was having that he told me. And we were super close, super, super close. Things that a mom would never know about their child. Um, And he was very open about it. And I don't know. To this day, I and I asked him, I just, I don't understand what made it okay for you to turn your life over to something. Help me understand that, you know, that you would just give your life over to something. And he just, I don't know. I just tried it. And I liked it. And he said, the worst thing I ever did was start smoking weed. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I guess that's it because it gives you some sort of courage because, again, you know, you don't die from it or jump off a building or anything. Things are all good. And it just frees you to go on to the next step. You know, he played around the Zanny bars in high school. And, you know, it it just starts from there. Yeah, there's a there's a. You know, there's a healthy set of coping skills. I always tell people that, it, you know, what you, when you choose certain behaviors, you choose certain consequences. And people th- do things in pattern over time because they get a payoff from them. And, you know, those can be unhealthy or healthy payoffs. And so, you know, whether it's the breakup of a girlfriend or failing a test or something that makes us internally feel less than or feel like we can't deal with it, there's a healthy way that we could choose to deal with that. But if we have access to something that makes it go away fast, even though it's got negative consequences, and I think that's the cycle of addiction that you described so perfectly was, you know, despite these negative consequences, associated with engaging in that behavior and I think for Jeremy the worst consequence was the shame and the guilt associated with the fact that he was doing that and that this had become a solution but you know it's hard for non-addicts or non-alcoholics to realize that that how how narrow the choice is once you've started that you become addicted to the relief it's not so much the substance it's the relief the substance gives you and if I can get relief even though it's hurting me I want the relief right right, right. and and I also think too it has a lot to do my brother and I were very close, but we're very different. You know, when I get stressed out or overwhelmed, I go and I talk to my mom or my friends or I talk about it and I share things about it. That's how I deal with my emotions. He was never like that. And I sometimes I think it's maybe a guy thing or, you know, whatever, but he was never vulnerable like that. So to me, I just feel like he had all of those pent up emotions and he was overwhelmed and he was stressed. And instead of going and talking or sharing, he turned to that. He turned to the substance. So... Tell me what it was like, you know, first as a, as a mother. I know that, you know, you're not alone. Um, and I know you know you're not alone in so many parents feeling the pain. I mean, all of us, I think one of the worst things that we could experience as parents is to see our children in pain. Oh. And we want to yeah. re- remove that pain at any cost. I mean, as you just so eloquently said, I mean, if there's anything literally in desperation that I've done that can reverse this for you, tell me because I want to do that. I mean, I want to relieve that pain. How hard is that that feeling of powerlessness that you feel when you just watch this cycle rose happening in front of your eyes? Oh, it is absolute, complete anxiety, desperation, a feeling of failure. What did I do wrong? Um, what didn't I do? It's It's just overwhelming. It consumes you. And every thought is about him and his addiction. And it's heartbreaking because... I always say one of the hardest things to do for me, and I'm sure for any mother, is to watch your child um, self-loathe, 
Jeremy loathed himself. And that alone broke my heart because I saw all the good things about him. You know, he was so kind. He was so um, sensitive. And for him to hate himself because of the fact that he couldn't stop. I mean, he physically couldn't stop. That's what opiates do to your brain. You know, you cannot stop. And for him to sit there and cry and apologize um, for what he put our family through is just, I wish I could take that away. I know. You know? Yeah. And, you know, that and then the flip side is, is this going to be the day? Is this going to be the day he doesn't wake up? Because you know the risks he's taking by oh. engaging in this behavior. And, and I think, you know, um, you know, the young induction into um, marijuana or any kind of escape, you know, I mean, all of these escapes that, that we can get addicted to at a young age, they become our go-to. And it's, you know, it, it literally is like playing Russian roulette and you're watching your son leave every day with a, lo- with a loaded gun knowing he's got it in his hand and not knowing what's going to happen. And, and it's tearing your family apart and, and tearing, you know, yeah. your your the, the sense of safety that you have apart. What what if any what if anything, you know, can you share with other mothers or fathers or families that are going through this? What was the what was what if anything was what you leaned on to help you get through this? And, and, and maybe, Rebecca, if you could answer the same question, I mean, what was what helped you during this time? Well, honestly, I prayed. I cried rivers of tears. I also went to an N.A. meeting, which relieved some of the stress. I didn't go regularly. I maybe should have. But you need to talk about it. And the problem with talking about it to your friends is it's horrifying to say that my son is addicted to heroin, Um People don't like the word heroin. But I think if you can go outside and go to other support groups, NA or Al-Anon, whatever the AA meeting is for family, something like that, that is really, really helpful. And, you know, for me, it was just pray. I I prayed constantly that um, God would save him. And the ironic thing is God did save him, just not in the way I wanted. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So. And I think, and 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 God bless you for for sharing and having the strength to share because, you know, parents and and, and mothers and fathers, you know, that the stigma associated with and and the cave that you feel like you need to stay in is the one thing that's keeping the family sick. I mean, it's you know they say we're only as sick as our secrets, and you know there the, there is no shame or guilt. It's only a it's only an illusion of what we project, and so you know, the courage is really in what you're doing and, and encouraging more parents to talk about it so that we can find solution, solutions to that is so powerful. And, and, you know, Rebecca, what was it like seeing your, seeing, feeling so powerless over your, your brother's disease and, and knowing how close you guys were, you know, knowing that, that he was, you know, involved in this must have been very hard for you. Yeah, it was, um, it was very hard. It was, you know, every day felt like it was never going to end and that was years and years of him using uh I think exactly like you just said it was so hard for me to I was embarrassed I'm not gonna lie I was I was embarrassed and for a long time it was really hard for me to even share it with some of my closest friends because like my mom said it's like the worst even now we are still trying to end the stigma of heroin and all the opioids and drugs that are out there because some people aren't comfortable talking about it. So for me, even years ago, having that stigma associated with with it and having no one in my life who I knew could relate to me was really hard. Um, I didn't really go to support groups. I prayed. I talked to my mom. I have a younger brother who I also kind of uh, leaned on a lot. But I think for a long time, I just kind of avoided it. I just couldn't. I didn't have a good outlet because I just felt like there's no one that can understand this and also I didn't want people to look down on me I didn't want people to look down on my family because he was such a good person that just got caught in a really bad thing so and then going back to you know the daily life it's just to see my mom feel so bad about herself when she's such a good mom and I know it had nothing to do with her was really hard too yeah so 
you know, after a while, after I realized how serious the problem was, it kind of didn't matter about what people thought about me or my family. I just started focusing like on my focus shifted to wanting to help him. And so I started being more open about it and talking about it more. And even with him, sometimes, you know, his attitude over the years started changing. He's, you know, I would walk in the room and say hi to him and he would be agitated. He would be annoyed, just not himself. So dealing with that was really hard too. And then there would just be times where I would just start calling him out and I would just say, I know that you're high, you know, I know that you're doing this, which would make things worse. But I think I held it in for so long that it got to a point where I couldn't any longer. And, you know, I did eventually open up to some of my close friends about it and they were more than supportive. And I feel silly for not going to them sooner, but it's a situation that I was never in. It's a situation I would never want anyone else to have to be in. Uh, But I think between you know his passing and really overcoming out loud and the more people you know standing up and sharing their stories has just strengthened our story uh but it I mean I'm not gonna lie it was a daily struggle for years and years and it was tough yeah I hate to hear and and I I felt it myself I remember after I after I um faced my addiction my alcoholism and and people knew that I was in recovery I, I remember the whispers, you know, that I would see and, and, you know, oh, there's, you know, Charlie, he realizes a drug addict, you know, it's, and, and, but that's, you know, we don't say that about diabetics. We don't say that about people with heart disease. We don't say, oh, my, my, my father or my brother is is struggling with diabetes or heart disease or some other condition, you know, and people rally around them and, and somehow addiction uh, and substance abuse, you know, hasn't reached that level. And so I think, you know, and, and when many people come to me and say, you know, what can I do? And what I hear from both of you is the most important thing you can do because we don't know what we can do for the sufferer, but we know we have to take care of ourselves in order to be able to be, you know, a resource for our family and to be able to sustain our own well-being that we have to take care of ourselves. And so the things that you guys are sharing with people about being open about this and talking more about it is is so courageous. And and so, you know, there, there, there was some hope, right? Jeremy, Jeremy ultimately, you know, dealt with dealt with this, and you guys got him into into treatment, and he and he and he, and he found some periods of sobriety. That must have given you a whole lot of hope. Yeah, it, you know, it really did. And let me just say that when you first find out your child has an addiction like that, it's overwhelming. You literally do not know what to do. Literally, you don't, and it's heartbreaking, of course. Um, Jeremy used to always say, mom, don't worry, you can't OD on smoking heroin. And I'm like, how do you, is that a fact? Like, is that a medical fact? How do you know that? And he goes, I'll never go to the needle. Well, the first time I realized he went to the needle is when he overdosed and I found him on the floor and I looked up and there was his rig, you know, with a spoon and a lighter and a syringe full of, you know, brown liquid. And I just, there's moments in your life that are just so clear and a mirror is held up and that's when I realized he's sick. He's so he needs so much help. He's broken. And that's what he used to tell me, mom, I'm broken. And, uh, that's heartbreaking. I mean, basically everything surrounding this thing is heartbreaking. And he did agree to go to, um, rehab once and he came out and he was clean for maybe 30 days started using again I found out he never did um, sober living by the way he never did sober living which was not big or I didn't know that much about it um all I knew is it was like three thousand dollars a month and there was a house in Thousand Oaks and everybody says oh well there's sneaking drugs in none of the houses we deal with by the way that they were talking about and he wouldn't go and I'm like well, by this time he's, you know, in his 20s. I can't make him go. Right. I can kick him out. We've done that. Um, he tried. He wanted to. He just couldn't beat it. He came back. You come back to the same environment. Your dealers know when you're out. They know when you're getting out. They're texting you right that day, that morning. Hey, you want to hook up? Hey, you know, let's, you know, you want to meet up? And boom, they're there. They're predators. They're at your doorstep. They deliver to your door. Um, It's very hard for an addict to overcome that. And I see the most success is when people do go to sober living. And the sober living houses that I now know about are wonderful. I wish I would have known them when Jeremy was alive. I could have, I don't know, 
maybe forced him, maybe threatened him. You can't live here. I don't know what I would have done, but there was just that shred of hope that maybe he would still be here. But, you know, I think everything in life happens for a reason, but he desperately wanted to get clean. He hated himself for not being able to get clean. You know, it's one of the things that I really encourage um, people in recovery to focus on is their own identity. You know, I think we, you know, what we think about ourselves is so important. And, you know, in today's society, there's, you know, we've lived with the fear of missing out or FOMO. And I think now so many adolescents are facing FOPO, which is the fear of other people's opinions. And they've been trapped up in what other people think about them. And, you know, they don't spend enough time on their own identity. And, you know, no matter, you can pass the, you can pass the soccer player test and you can pass the son test and the, and the brother test, but for some reason they can't, you can't pass the look in the mirror test. And, you know, that's what a lot of people that, that suffer from addiction and substance abuse face is that, that self-loathing. And, and then they, they, they bracket and build on top of that with shame-based behavior of, you know, you know, sticking a needle in their arm or smoking something to get that relief. And then the shame and the guilt, you know, contributes to the fact that they continue to do it. But what you said is, is so powerful, which is there is no roadmap. You know, you really, you feel lost. There is no, it's not like you can open a set of instructions and say, Oh, if your son is, you know, using a rig and overdosing on heroin, here's what you should do, mom. Right. And so you feel very lost and you feel very desperate. And you know, those times are, you know, and that's, I think it's so powerful for you to at least be, providing parents with some insight into into what that must be like yeah and also another thing at that time is I had no one to turn to none of my you know friends had the same issue you know my one girlfriend oh my nephew you know was a heroin addict this and that but you know there really are no resources and now there's more and more resources for families to reach out for the addicts themselves to reach out and get help and that feeling of hopelessness we want to get rid of we want to show everybody that there is hope dare to believe that you can get well just dare to believe and there's so many of us in this community now working on that and towards that and we're growing and people are coming forward in fact um, around the time Jeremy died I had five literally five families come to me and say we're dealing with the same thing that's right and we all i thought like these are the no perfect idea. families no, of course you right. know the good families right. they live in the great neighborhood they drive the car they're so involved with their kids they go family vacation they go to church together it doesn't matter it doesn't matter it doesn't matter because it comes in if there's a crack in the door for it to get in, it's so saturated in our neighborhoods that it's coming in. So I think parents really need to have a hardcore talk with their kids and say, look it, this is the reality. Literally, I think high school kids are probably three texts away from scoring heroin. That's right. And, and I, you know, you described so tragically what i don't think a lot of people understand is the progressive nature of addiction you know it's it's like smoking pot to smoking heroin but i'll never i'll never go to the need i'll never right. do i'll ne and next thing you know you know that line is crossed and it's just a matter of time before the next line is crossed and that's the progressive nature and the and the, and the chemical dependency that reduces you know all of our natural neurotransmitters and all of our natural hormones that we usually get pleasure from and replace yeah. those with, you know, drug consuming mm -hmm. levels of hormones. And mm -hmm. so we become dependent on the exact thing and we need more and more of it. And people are like, why can't you just stop it? I mean, your body literally has become dependent, chemically dependent to, to, to survive on, you know, the, the drugs and the alcohol and getting more of it, you know, is, is become, you know, I'm sure for you, it became Jeremy's existence, getting, using, recovering from getting in. And, and that right. cycle just continues progressively. And I'm so glad, you know, so, so when you see your son or daughter, you know, who just says, oh, it's just pot, you know, it's a warning sign because there's something that they're not, especially, you know, between the ages of, of 11 and 25, when the brain's developing, that our kids are so susceptible to chemical dependency to change, you know, the very nature of their brains. Right. You know, and so it's a big, that progressive nature is a problem. And the other thing you highlighted, which I, you know, I can't emphasize enough is Newberry Park, Thousand Oaks. This is, this is not Mayberry. You know, this, it, it is real. 
there are children dying, you know, uh, across, I don't know if you know this, probably don't, across the, the hall here from the studio uh, is another mother in Newberry Park um, whose son passed away at Thousand Oaks High School as a result of an overdose. I see her regularly every day. I mean, the pain is real. This is not Mayberry, and, and the, the access to and the availability to get is no different here than it is anywhere else, is it? No, it's not. In fact, we joke that we live in Mayberry or we, you know, my kids grew up in Disneyland because it was so perfect. Um, you know, our next door neighbor was their preschool teacher. You know, right. you see the teacher at the market. You see, you know, everybody. It's such a small town and people just don't realize, you know, Jeremy was introduced to heroin in Newberry Park. He got addicted in Newberry Park and he ultimately overdosed and died in Newberry Park. It is here, you know, it's here. And I think parents need to open their eyes and not criticize, you know, or condemn. They need to open their eyes and really see what their kids are up against. That's right. Well they're said. up against this. And you they're know? not prepared to deal with it. There's no one that's, Who's you know, prepared? we don't, we don't, nobody. nobody. And, you know, I, I, you know, I wish it is one of my wishes and one of my hopes and something I'll continue to fight for is that we do provide more social emotional learning to children, that we do some self-esteem work with kids, especially in this day and age, to help them understand the things that they need to do to build up their own sense of self-esteem by the way they feel about themselves and that there's healthy things to, to do to deal with, you know, the emotional highs and lows as a young adult and, you know, that, that ultimately, um, you know, a chemical solution to that leads down a path that they don't want. And I, I love that you, you talk about what a genuine sensitive soul your son and, and brother was because, you know, I, I, we just hope that people can see that in themselves before they become dependent on something else to, to shine a, a dark light on them, you know. Yeah. And so so he, he, he finds a little sobriety. He gets out and starts using again. How, how fast did, did the ultimate end, end come? And, and, and tell us a little bit about what that must have been like both of them well i um he got out of rehab in for the third time in on february 15th of 2017 and he remained clean until probably a week before he died and i know this because i he was acting strange and i p tested him of course it came back clean because there's a thing out there called fake pee and you can get it any place that sells marijuana or paraphernalia. Um, we have a store, a smoke shop right down the street. That's where he used to buy it. And I mean, I hate to say the depths that I have gone to to prove that it's fake pee, but if it educates other mothers, I will say that I have literally had to put my nose in it and sniff it uh I never reduced myself to tasting it but that would probably have been the next step um and he would go pee and um we'd watch him I'd make my husband go in the bathroom he would like strip down and and he would still pass the pee test I'm like something's not right and one time he forgot to flush so there I am and I go quietly and I scoop it out and it tested positive for opiates. And um, this is right around Easter time in 2017. And I'm like, Jeremy, what? Come on, what is this? And do you want to go back? You got to you, pick yourself up right now. Pick it up immediately. Don't slide down this path. And he said, Mom, I'm not, of course, Mom, I'm not going to do it anymore. Okay. And of course, I just, from that moment on, there goes my worry. You know, it all comes back. It floods back. All comes back. But and to, to backtrack a little bit, the last time that he did, you know, go to recovery and he came back, he was doing very well for months because at that point he was on uh, Vivitrol. Right? Yeah, Vivitrol. the Vivitrol shot, which I guess is like a opioid blocker, right. essentially. So well, I, maybe for a month or two months, he was on it and um, he was doing really well. And he actually it was kind of the first time for me that I thought, OK, now I actually feel hopeful. The past two times, you know, he went, he was maybe sober for a couple weeks after before he started using again. But this time I it just I think it's the hardest for me, too, because I had so much 
hope with the last time when he got sober. And um, yeah, we celebrated Easter together, but then right after Easter, that's when his he started acting weird, and then that's when all the drug testing and stuff happened. Um, but he was on the shot, and uh, a lot of the a piece of the story that a lot of people don't know is that he went to the doctor to get his shot. He scheduled an appointment. He went to the doctor. The doctor wasn't in. The doctor, I don't know what happened. Did he forget about the appointment? I don't know. But because of the medication it is, only a doctor can administer it. So, and I remember this happening. He came home from his appointment. He said, I couldn't get the shot. The doctor wasn't there. My mom was furious. She picks up the phone and she literally says, do you understand that this medication is the difference between life and death for my son. And then from that point, the next, you know, a week happened, whatever it was, all the drug testing, this and that, and then he was gone. So that, I think that's the hardest part for me is that I did have so much hope at the end and things were positive and he was, he got hired as an EMT. He, he went through EMT training. He was supposed to, he literally was supposed to start as an EMT uh, the day before he passed away. So I kind of am suspicious that maybe he was nervous and maybe that's why he went to use. But it all happened in such a short time frame from the time that he didn't get the shot to the time that he used to the time that he passed. Um, it was really hard. And you can continue. But I just wanted to put yeah, that in there because no, that it, was that the last time I really that's the thing that I question the most is why it's like he had such an uphill battle. He was finally at the top and it was like you're either going to go forward or go back. And he went back, and that was it, and that was the end, quite literally. So, and I, it's I, hard. I think I think what it is hard, and it's 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 gut wrenching, and and to hear you speak so candidly about it is so powerful because I think what people don't understand is that you know the the lie that after some period of sobriety, you know that that we can let our guard down is people in recovery. I mean, this is really we get a daily reprieve. I mean, this this fighting and overcoming addiction is you know it's a it's a set of behaviors and you know you can have months i know i know people with years decades of sobriety that that you know will let down their guard and stop engaging in the behaviors that they've been engaging in to stay healthy and clean and it's not long before there's a, an emotional setback and you know you said it, so it it could have been as simple as just being nervous about performing at a new job and he knew that I, I don't intend to die. I just intend to get some relief and and shame on us for not being so clear about the fact that that instant relief, you know, we don't know. It is a game of Russian roulette. We don't, there isn't always coming back and you guys are going to speak to that, you know, and, and how that ripped your guts out to know that, you know, the last time was the last time and it wasn't meant to be the last time. He, this was not meant to be, you know, the day he didn't come back to us. No, it wasn't. And Rebecca just, you know, when she says I got on the phone and I was, uh, angry and this and that I you know if I could use one word to describe what it's like having a child addicted the word is frantic hmm. you live in a constant state of being frantic and her telling that story just brought it all back to me I was on the phone with the you know the drug company the you know the doctor's office voicemail everybody and I was frantic for him to get treated and that really is how I felt throughout the whole time I knew about his addiction. You know, it's just like something bad is going to happen in the next 30 seconds, five minutes, whatever, but it's coming. Walking on eggshells literally yes. every day. Yes, I remember You're going frightened. I it's, remember going to her house on random days and just, you know, she's kind of grumpy. I'm like, what's wrong? Oh, well, you know, I didn't sleep well. I heard Jeremy up late, you know, standing outside his door to make sure that he was still, there was activity going on in his room, you know, two or three in the morning, knocking on his door just to check that he's still breathing, you know, going into his room, watching him sleep, making sure that he's actually alive. Like that's, that's what it was. And it's, it shines a light on, I think the addicts, you know, false impression that, oh, I'm not hurting anybody. You know, I'm just hurting myself. What's the matter with this? I'm not causing anybody else any disruption. And, and literally the life of an addict is like a tornado, right? It just runs through all of our lives, you know, or, or, or all of your lives in a way that really is indescribable. I mean, it is a constant state of anxiety, worry, and fear that, you know, you wouldn't wish on anybody. Constant. Yeah, and I constant. would never wish it on anyone. Mm-mm. You know, the night before he died, he was to start his EMT job at a hospital um, that morning. And so the night before 
he was uh, working with Ed, my husband, and he was just working long days, long days. And Ed just said, get up and go to work every day. Get up and go to work every day, you know. And he was. And he came. they came home late that night, and he ran to the mall to get a pair of khakis because he needed them for his job the next day. He washed them. We dried them. I, got, I woke up at 5 that morning to make sure he put them in the dryer. Um, and the funny thing is, I don't feel like I'm a helicopter mom, okay? These are the things I was forced to do for my own sanity. Right. So Just I trying woke to bring up, some yes. control into an uncontrolled situation. Yes. And I don't describe myself as a helicopter mom when they were growing up. And suddenly, I am for my adult child. And his pants were dry and he laid him out, you know, smoothed him out. He was so neat. And on top of the dryer and I thought okay well I should probably go take him into him but I didn't want to wake him because he had a 12-hour shift and he was due to leave about eight o'clock to be there at nine in the valley he was you know wanted to get there early on time blah 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 and so I went back to sleep and I woke up maybe about seven forty-five after and I didn't hear it the house was dead silent it was deafening silence and I don't know if you understand what I mean but it is so quiet you can hear your own you know heartbeat throbbing in your ears it was just silent and my husband had class that day way down south and he had left early Rebecca didn't live at home my other son Daniel was in the Navy and it was just Jeremy and I got up and I was excited. I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to see if he's all ready. I want to make sure he has breakfast. You know, he's going to be gone. Do you want me to take make you picture. a lunch? Take his picture and his uniform. And I went to open the door. I'm like, Jer, and I knocked. And there was no response. And I knocked louder and there was no response. And then I go to turn the knob. The door was locked, which was against house rules. He was never allowed to have his door locked. Um, and he had to sleep with it open and I just immediately felt like something in my gut. I'm like, where is he? Well, maybe he left early. So I ran to the front of the house and I looked out in the driveway and his car was still there. And I thought, oh my God. And I went back and I was pounding and then I ran to the bathroom and I broke in I picked his lock and I went in and he was slumped over his bed in his night clothes in his you know in his shorts and a tank top and I'm like Jeremy what are you doing you're not ready because this time was around 8 and I knew he wanted to leave by 8:15 and I'm like Jeremy what are you doing and and for a moment um I just thought you know you have all these things going through your mind and, um, I thought, oh my God, are you playing like some sick joke on me and trying to be silly? And I went and I um, touched him and I pushed him awake or trying. And he was so cold and stiff. And, um, and I started screaming. I said, Jeremy. And I kind of flipped him over, and he was just so stiff, and his eyes were closed, and his face was blue. And I just knew, I thought, oh my God, it's the most horrifying feeling when you realize that. And at the moment, I just thought, this is it. There's no more hope. My hope had died and I immediately ran to my room got my phone called 911 it was hysterical and I was screaming as if the louder I screamed he might wake up and um I got 911 on the phone and she said I cannot understand what you're saying and I like I slapped myself in the face 
And I got a hold of myself and I gave my address. I said, my son, I think he overdosed. He's dead. I knew he was dead. And she goes, well, let's try, you know, uh, CPR. And I said, he's already dead. And she goes, try it anyway. And so I did. And the paramedics, he was dead. I knew it. And I don't know how the front door got opened. Uh, and next thing I know, the paramedics and the firemen were there. And and then I heard Rebecca coming up the stairs before that. And I said, Rebecca, don't come in here. Don't come in here. And um, she came in anyway. And she came up the stairs and said, Mom, what's going on? What's wrong? And she came in and saw him and just started screaming and crying and then the paramedics got there and came in and took over and had us leave the room and um pronounced him dead and you know there's a house full of police and investigators and this and that and we weren't allowed back in the room and then they went an hour or so later they went to roll him away and um, I said, I want to see him before he goes. Yeah. And um, they resisted. And they said, no, he doesn't look the same. And I said, I found him. I know what he looks like. And um, by that time, my husband had gotten home. He raced home. He was about an hour away. He got home. And uh, I think my sister was there. I don't know. It was a blur. And they stopped him by the front door on the gurney, and they unzipped the body bag. Sorry. No, this is this is real. I saw him, and he was so beautiful. He was such a beautiful young man. I don't know how or what he did that. And so there was the three of us, my husband, Rebecca, and I. And we prayed over him. And I think the chaplain was there praying with us. And we just prayed over him. I blessed him. I said, I forgive you, Jeremy. And um, they zipped up the body bag and they wheeled him out. And that's the last time I saw my son. And, and the pain in this room um, is indescribable. Um, the, the pain of, of a life lost and the, the, the true pain of, of addiction um, that's, that's being faced as a result of this tragedy. and. You know, Rebecca, I, I see the tears in your eyes, and I, I see the the loss in your in your heart. And you know, to know that that this fight had had ended with Jeremy gone just had to be unbearable for you, especially having that glimmer uh, glimmer of hope. Right. Yeah. And it was um, <clears throat> it was, so I think it actually was like Easter or something, and we had a really nice time, and we went to uh, my best friend's house, and it was just things were just so different because, you know. Jeremy didn't ever really go out and you know he as he got further into his addiction he just kind of wanted to be alone and this and that so he was doing really well he, that was in his period of uh, sobriety when he was on his Vivitrol and he it was such a big thing because he came to Easter with us but it like he came with us to my friend's house and it was so wonderful to have him there and such a something that he wouldn't typically do and it was just so wonderful and I saw him and then I think the next day I had dinner with the family and then it was uh, maybe two days later that this happened or even a day later and um, I have dogs and I always take my dogs to my parents house and that was normally a day that I wasn't going to go there but I swear I just had this feeling that's like I'm going to go to my mom's house today for whatever day whatever reason. I was like, I'm, I'm going to go. I'll drop the dogs off and see my mom. And then he had had overdoses before. Um, and so, you know, the paramedics and things have been to our house. And so I just remember feeling fine, you know, driving up the hill. But as I was driving up the hill, I see a paramedic 
cart, you know, a paramedic car, turn onto our street and like cut me off and go right in front of me. And the feeling that I had, I, I can't even explain it. Like my heart sank. And I just started praying to God, like, please don't be going to my house. Like, please don't be going to my house. And I get up the hill and they were, and they were parked in front of my house. And I had all my dogs and I, you know, just get in the driveway and I throw open my car doors, like, and I go up to the front door and the front door's already wide open. And that's, you know, weird for our house because we always have the door shut and locked. And I just remember as I walked in, I just remember hearing my mom counting, like, one, two, three, one, two, three. And I heard her say, come on, Jer, like, come on. And I just knew that he was gone. And I ran up the stairs and my mom said, like, she said, don't come in here. And part of me kind of wishes that I hadn't. And part of me feels so guilty that my mom had to be the one to find him because she always fought so hard for his life. But I went in and I saw him and I just yeah I freaked out it was I had I I fell to the ground I was crying I didn't know what to do and then it from there it was literally like a movie all these like paramedics and cops rushing in and telling me you know trying to take me outside and sit me down and ask me all these questions and I'm just thinking like what what is even happening right now and then after talking to the cops you know they wanted to do an investigation about it and you know they were trying to go after the drug dealer that sold him the heroin and all this stuff and then after I talked to them and kind of gathered myself I obviously started calling people and I you know I called my boyfriend at the time who he was closest he was in Westlake working and then I called my dad and I think the hardest thing I had to do was call my younger brother and tell him over the phone because he was in Florida at the time and I called him a few times before he even answered and I was just frantic calling him and then I had to tell him over the phone and then he couldn't even come home for three days because he had to get all this, you know, all these requests granted just to leave and um, it was truly, it still is the worst day of my life and um, like my mom said, we got to say goodbye to him and I got to see him one last time. And I just, I, it was the worst day of my life. And I, you know, from there, things just really spiraled. And, um, you know, everyone was so kind to us and all the community, you know, coming over to make sure we're okay. And, it, you know, I was sick to my stomach all day. Uh, I couldn't get out of bed. I was throwing up. I just, it, it is the most surreal situation to be in I mean I can't I just can't explain it I literally have no words it's indescribable it's indescribable it it sounds indescribable I mean it's a feeling that I don't think anybody could imagine that level of loss and and you know that especially given how hopeful you were and and it really just feel like you know the carpet was ripped out from under your feet that's how I felt exactly it didn't feel real all our like we lost the war you know and and so take a moment and and remember that life lost and and what a what a great wonderful young man Jeremy was and and what a, a incredible family he had around him and 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 reflect on the power of the disease of addiction and you know the the consequences that you know we don't see coming and and how tragic it is and it's it's just not to be taken lightly and i just have so much respect for both of you to come share your deep pain with us because what what comes next to me is remarkable because I, I you know having suffered some loss as a result of the disease of alcoholism and addiction myself and knowing what grief looks like myself um with a with a sibling Rebecca and having my sister gone five years ago um you know it it is surreal and and it does numb you and and you often you know, you're, you, you, there's so many directions that you could turn, and and you know, so you, you know, tell me just a little bit about the, the um, the range of emotions. I mean, I know you, you you go through a range of emotions and griefing. Was was there much anger or more sadness? I was more sad. I think I've been numb for two years after his death. I mean, it was so traumatic to find him. You know. Um, I relive that scene every day, even still, 
in my mind and I try to block it out. It was, it was hopelessness. It was kind of, I was so overwhelmed that I had tried everything I knew in my power and it still didn't work. So I was very overwhelmed and extremely depressing, of course, obviously. And, um, you know, but the anger did come and when it came, it just rose up and I knew I had to do something. Yes. Like I am not going by the wayside. Like I said before, I will not go quietly and something has to be done about this. And I knew at that time a thought popped in that no other mother should have to go through this, you know, and it's so depressing. You have to work every day to climb out of that depression. And then it just dawned on me, you know, I, I didn't want to come at it from like a law enforcement angle because when you say it come was, at it, you mean addiction at a, it doing something okay. in response to the death. Right. I'm like, this is not sitting well with me. I, in that sense, I was angry yep. and I knew I am not going to go by the wayside. I'm not going to go quietly. So I knew I had to do something in response and to help these other families as well. So I didn't want to do, you know, like a law enforcement thing and get new laws on the books and blah, blah, blah. That didn't feel right, but it did feel right to help the addicts themselves because Jeremy had shown me what it's like to be an addict. And I understood what it's like to be an addict. I saw his pain. I understand the hopelessness and the self-loathing and the depression and the, the hopelessness that comes with addiction. And I'm like, I wanted to extend an olive branch and say, come this way, we will help you. I don't know what, but we're going to help you. And, you know, I always says my mom raised us to believe that everything happens for a reason. And I know now that God didn't take my son just to be cruel to me and make me suffer. Um, he took my son so that I could help others. And Jeremy taught me about addiction so I could understand the addict and, you know, give them a ray of hope. How important was it in your own recovery and, and your own ability to elevate yourself out of a, out of that grieving and depressing state to have a new purpose? It was everything. It was everything. It was everything from the, you know, doing the paperwork to get a 501c3 to yeah. occupying that to you know, getting our word out to talking to people. And, you know, our community was so amazing. I think by nine o'clock, everybody knew what had happened. And we had visitors immediately. And, you know, every day for five days. Um, that got me through the, the first part. But yeah, knowing that I was determined to save at least one child from addiction, from dying from addiction, that was my life and that was my goal. So everything I had went into that, into uh, forming and meeting people and that was it. And I'm, I, you know, I'm so glad that, that we, we do these both uh, audio and, and people can, can see this uh, on video because the change in, in your demeanor from the sadness and the grief into the hope of and the, the vibrancy of what it, looks like to know that you're helping people recover is remarkable rose it's remarkable thank you I and i just have so much respect for you as a person and a mother and <sighs> rebecca to jump in and join this i mean the depth of your pain and to join mom and, and say you know me too you know i'm, right. I'm not if she's going to be loud i'm i'm, I'm going to be i'm going to help you know right. make that even louder yeah yeah and it for me it definitely wasn't easy i know people talk about like the stages of grief and all that stuff um for me, it's just been sadness. You know, I know that, yes, I'm very passionate about helping others. And my whole point is that I never want anyone to like have to go through or feel what I have felt. I want to try and help everyone. But I don't think that I ever really did have any stages of anger. Honestly, I it's just been more sad. I mean, I've you know, I've I had to pull myself out of depression. I was depressed for probably a year, I would say. Um, 
but you know it's just like the pain of like getting up and getting out of bed and I would I would go see you know like psychiatrists and uh, therapists and stuff and I remember one having one um, person that I talked to say I know you're really sad but you have to realize that he was very selfish for what he did and you know him as an addict it affects everyone and I think that kind of pissed me off more than anything because I don't I don't see it that way. I Yeah, we went through a lot, and it was terrible, and it affects everyone in your life, but I never got mad at him for it. Um, and, you know, more than anything, it's just the sadness of not wanting to... Feeling so bad and not wanting anyone else to feel that way is kind of my driving factor. And, of yes, I, I, of course, I'm mad that there's drug dealers and people out there, but I don't really focus on that, and I don't focus on the negative feelings or, you know, the fact that everything that Jeremy did affected me or this or that uh, I just want to be helpful going forward and um, I think probably the one situation I did have with anger was just with the drug dealer and you know my mom's forgiven him I have not I mean I don't feel the need to because I don't feel like it's you know holding me back or dragging me down Um, it's just more of a motivating factor to help others really is where it comes from and I talk to a lot of people that are in you know as a result of the kind of challenges they face we, we do hit a, a, a situation a situational depression and and how important was having purpose and cause for you to helping you kind of pull yourself up and and, and get out of that situation because you 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 are such a vibrant young woman now I mean Thank I see you. all the things you're doing and your smile's wonderful and your Thank eyes are you. open and bright and and how important was it for you to find purpose in in Jeremy's passing it was really important and I think that it was to it was a combination of so many things. It was a combination of people coming to us and telling us, like, you know, sharing their story with us and that they're going through the same thing. Because I swear, we just, we felt like no one could understand, like, no one could understand. And we felt judged and, you know, and then Jeremy passed and it was like, people came forward and we had to do something. And we've ha- we had our doubts, no doubt. You know, my mom was like, we have to do something. I want to start a foundation. I was totally on board, you know. And then the next week it's like, is anything going to come out of this? Are we really doing this? Why are we doing this? You know, it was hard to move forward. And it's been, I think our foundation has been around for three years now. I mean, we literally, she filed the paperwork months after, you know, started researching weeks after this happened. Um, So we threw ourselves into that. And we still, you know, we're small but mighty and we're still growing. But for me, it was, it's bittersweet. It is sometimes very challenging to work so closely. Um, you know, to Jeremy's death and to be constantly reminded of it. But at the same time, like I said, if I can give someone hope or if I can, you know, something can get someone can get something out of my story or if even an addict can, you know, relate and kind of see, wow, this really does affect everyone, then that's why I do it. I mean, by no means do I enjoy being sad. Do I enjoy crying? Do I enjoy reliving the worst day of my existence? But I ultimately do it for others and so we had our ups and downs and um, it was an emotional roller coaster but now we're kind of you know solid and we've got good support from the community and so it's it's all uphill from here I tell you I wouldn't I wouldn't bet against these two women with every dollar I have they are on a mission and and so people understand I want to bring I want to really bring some perspective so so the JC foundation uh the jeremy castro foundation is committed to ending the stigma associated with addiction it is committed to providing resources real dollars associated with helping addicts find recovery they support people in early recovery getting into sober living houses they provide funds for them to be able to do that um i'm going to let you guys talk about how people can find you but i want to put this in perspective because you spend your lives now watching others recover hundreds of people that you've helped hundreds of people that were where Jeremy and you've taken all of this pain and all of this loss and all of this grief and given away so freely of yourselves to other people who aren't who are recovering and watching them recover and and knowing that while it wasn't Jeremy's fate and that Jeremy's not here anymore that you see his life saved in every single person you're helping and and how selfless that is is remarkable because I know you know, we do have choices, right? We can either we can either suffer in silence and we can become victims of our circumstances or we can decide 
to take action and to and to get engaged in doing something that's positive for ourselves and others and and to watch both of your healing and to watch jeremy's memory continue i mean in 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 everything that is that is that is remembered about him you know to see the pictures of him playing soccer I mean, he's not a life gone you know without purpose and he remains living i think in everybody that i've seen that has come through you know whether it's the fellowship house or oak forest recovery or the other houses that you're now working with and you know while you might be small and mighty you know if, if there's anything that comes out of this i hope it'll bring awareness to your foundation that we can all get behind what you're doing because together we're you know i believe together we're better and so tell us a little bit about the foundation how people can get in touch with you and how we can help you you know uh, when when people are listening to this you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put up the, uh, the links to, to the foundation, but tell us how people get in touch with you, what, what you're doing and what kinds of things people can do to, to help you. So our foundation name is jeremycastrofoundation.org. It's got our story. It's got a lot of information. We've got merchandise, um, and it has resources, which we are constantly updating. We also have a podcast called $20 because, that is the amount it took to take Jeremy's life. It was a $20 drug deal that killed him. And we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, mm-hmm. we're not on Twitter, yeah. but we do that and we go speaking different places. We speak um, for Oxnard, the probation department down there. Although with COVID, we're not. Um, and so much of of people knowing about us is word of mouth yeah. you know people see in the meetings in the rooms our gear and what's that and what's that and we've been referred by so many you know people in programs to say just call this person call these guys see if they can help you out and um, there is no more gratifying feeling to see an addict turn their life around and that's the joy that we get from it to see and we know some of these people because they're in our neighborhood right they used to use with jeremy and to see them turn their life around is just like oh my god thank you god because our efforts are working and even if we help one person at a time five people at whatever it is it's working it's one more family that won't suffer the loss of their loved one it's one more family that's going to have you know everybody at their thanksgiving table everybody at their christmas table everyone at their birthday parties you know and um that's why we do it so we've kind of come over the hump of just grieving and heartache and now we're seeing people recover and it's a beautiful thing Right. It is. And I think the biggest thing, too, with us is we want we're really just trying to hone in on our community. We know that when we started this, we know that we can't literally save every person in the whole entire world. But we're like, it's here in our town. It's, you know, Newbury Park. I've born and raised here at Thousand Oaks, Westlake. It's so we are trying to basically just cover, you know, Ventura County or the Conejo Valley, starting right here in our small community where people think that, you know, they're still turning the blind eye and schools are still turning the blind eye. Oh, we don't have that problem and this and that. So we are honing in and focusing in on our community, what's good to us, and then growing from there. Um, Like she said, we are we are on um, Instagram, we're on Facebook, we have a website, we started selling merchandise, and 100% of proceeds go to helping people. So we, you know, we donate our time, which is nothing for us, we're happy to do it. Um, But so all the proceeds go. So, you know, we greatly welcome donations. Um, Like I said, we have resources, we're working closely with other people and trying to build our resource base, and basically just spread awareness and education. We work closely with the foundation Not One More, who is in Simi Valley, and the uh, president, Pat Montoya, he invites us to speak. And so, you know, we've gone and done talks at the high schools. And um, I think that's our next big thing is we would really love to break into, you know, our local high schools and things after all this COVID stuff is over. And then additionally, we wanted to put together some sort of maybe um, parents group or something we were talking about and maybe, you know, what signs to look for or just some sort of support group. We want to start starting. uh, We would like to start getting those you know, up and going in our community as well. Uh, so we just want to be a resource and we just want to be a service to people that, you know, might be in our shoes where my mom was a few years ago where you quite literally 
don't know what to do. You don't know what to do. You don't know where to start. That's kind of why we're here and, you know, financially helping other facilities. Um, We don't have an actual facility. I think that's a big thing I want to let people know. We don't have a facility, but we fund the facilities and we fund people that might not be able to afford recovery. I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, recovery takes money and, um, you know, the houses, they have to pay for food, you know, they have to pay for the lifestyle. So it is something that a lot of people might not have access to. And we just want, you know, donations, like I said, are always welcome. And we just want to be basically a resource to help others. Well, I'll tell you, this is two of the most courageous women I could have imagined. I really, um, I can't really describe in words what it's been like to, to share this morning with you guys. And, and thank you on behalf of so many in the Conejo Valley and, and the Ventura County area, and really your voices are very loud, um, and I hear you, and you know we'll do everything that we can to be sure that everyone else can hear you, and just know that we'll continue to honor your mission. Um, I do say that that people have a choice. We can suffer in silence, or we can overcome out loud, and you guys have sure shown me what it means to overcome adversity and turn the, 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 the attention, the, the selfless involvement in other people's lives to help other people recover. Uh, so from, from us at Overcome Out Loud and from me personally, I just offer a lot of love and support to both you, Rebecca, and to you, Rose. And thank you guys for sharing this morning with us. Thank well, you thank so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you.